Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Wednesday. This is Seattle Now. Cyber attacks on healthcare organizations are becoming much more common. In the past three months, at least 13 healthcare providers with patients in Washington were hit by data breaches. It all comes down to how connected our medical records are to the internet. In a minute, Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama will explain why the attacks are on the rise and what's being done to stop them. But first, let's get you caught up. The city of Tukwila plans to erect a large heated tent to help shelter asylum seekers at the Riverton Methodist Church. Hundreds of people, some fleeing violence, have been living in an encampment there since last year. On Tuesday, King County said it would also chip in more funding to help aid organizations step in to assist. It is dumping snow in the mountains, which is good news for skiers, but not really making a dent in Washington's snowpack. We're at about 60 percent of normal right now. The state climatologist says most of Washington has been one to three degrees Fahrenheit above normal. And the National Weather Service expects a warmer and drier than normal March. And Macy's workers are bracing for the possibility their store may be included in the latest round of closures. The retailer said it plans to close 150 more stores this week. Unionized workers here say they're disappointed but not surprised by the move. That's it for now. Make sure to join Paige Browning tonight for evening headlines. Last Thanksgiving, when most of us were digging into turkey and potatoes, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center was hit by a cyber attack. The Hutch hasn't confirmed how many medical records the hackers stole, but in the following weeks, some patients started receiving a barrage of spam and threatening emails. The Hutch is not alone in this scary conundrum. For the first eight months of the year, more than 80 million people had their medical data stolen. The federal government reported that there was like an over 90 percent increase of these types of health care specific breaches since 2018. So it's definitely a significant problem. Seattle Times reporter Elise Takahama has been digging into this increase in cyber attacks and the effort in Washington to stop them. She found out that our medical data is worth a lot of money in the right hands. Some of these medical records can sell for 400 500 even $1,000 per record. It's pretty stunning when you think about it that way. And so this is a big reason why hackers are, are really starting to target the medical data more and more. Elise is here to tell us more about how hackers are trying to get our medical data and how we can all take steps to protect ourselves. Elise, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me today. Good to see you. You know, healthcare systems are so complicated to navigate, and HIPAA requires hospital systems to take patient privacy very seriously. Intuitively, you might think that that extends to hacking, 
But clearly that's not true. So what is making hospitals so vulnerable? Yeah, healthcare organizations and hospitals now are, as we all know, increasingly reliant on online network connections. That That's obviously an increasing trend as well. You know, whenever we go into a hospital or a clinic, everything's online. You know, we're able to do communications through my chart, even just actual machinery like CT scans or x-ray machines. Those things used to be offline and now they're very much connected to a network or, or the internet basically which makes them vulnerable to potential hackers. It's not necessarily that each of these machines contains patient information but it's it, it's more of like an entry point that hackers could potentially use to then get into the broader system. Yeah, I understand why I would want to keep my medical record private because it's my personal information but why is it so valuable to hackers? One thing that one expert said is because they are unchanging, because we can always change our email or even get a new credit card in an attempt to protect against identity theft. But medical records, insurance info is a lot more difficult to just change at the snap of your fingers. You know, we've also heard that hackers can use this information to file bogus insurance claims, to buy, you know, fake medicine or prescriptions to, you know, of course, identity theft is still a part of that as well. So there are these other types of you know, actions that hackers can use with the medical information versus just maybe your your name and your date of birth or even your finances. Patients were getting threatening emails yeah. from these hackers, which sounds scary. Yeah, that was a really scary thing that we were hearing about. You know, of course, when anyone's data gets leaked, then this person might be likely to get a just host of spam messages and emails, more phishing emails. The thing that we were hearing that was pretty concerning with the Fred Hutch hack as well is that uh, several patients were writing in about what they call swatting threats, which is basically when there's a bogus claim made to law enforcement saying, hey, like you have to go to this house, something bad is happening. And so maybe officers will show up, maybe, for example, SWAT teams, which is where this term comes from, and there's nothing there. And that can definitely put people in danger, both the person whose house it is and of course the officers as well just because you don't know what situation you're going into and that's something that is really scary to people so we we heard from fbi seattle who was investigating these types of threats that there's been no indication that this has actually happened in seattle related to the fred hutch breach which is definitely good news but um, it was something that we were hearing from patients that they were getting these emails that this was going to happen if basically they didn't pay the ransom wow Okay, so there's financial exploitation. There is potentially dangerous situations through swatting. What did you find out about who may be behind these attacks? Yeah, I mean, these types of investigations are really difficult and complicated. Um, We were hearing from FBI Seattle that their agents generally are working to find hackers definitely within the U.S., but increasingly overseas as well, including in countries like China, Russia, you know, all over Europe. It's it's something that they have been 
trying to connect with different law enforcement agencies in different countries as well. There's still not a ton of clarity around who might be behind these. That was the case for this Fred Hutch hack is that at least from what they know so far, it looked like it was this cybercrime group from overseas. It's usually not just one person. It's an entire organization of of hackers, potentially. Um, And, you know, they're very organized. They have, you know, a business in this. They know exactly, you know, what software might be vulnerable. And that can affect a lot of different healthcare systems around the country that maybe use the same things. Yeah. Healthcare organizations being online is a huge factor in these attacks Can you tell me about how hackers are getting into their systems? At least for some of these more widespread cyber attacks that have hit certain pieces of software. For example, there's this piece of software called Citrix. Basically, there was this vulnerability in the system that hackers were able to take advantage of, use that to to get into the system, steal all the data and and go out and disseminate it. Um, I I don't know too many of the specifics about each of these different software weaknesses, but we've also definitely heard that, you know, the number one risk is with employees. That is, you know, a really concerning thing because it's so easy for any one person just to open an email and and click on a link. Um, And if that person happens to work for a massive hospital system, or even outside of this example, a government agency, anything really, um, then then they, using their work email, might be putting the entire system in jeopardy. And it can happen in seconds. It's so easy. I'm sure we've all seen these kinds of phishing emails that make us pause or think twice. But, you know, they, they are looking really realistic these days. And, you know, one expert that we talked to kind of noted the increased use of AI in these types of attempts, basically using hackers using AI to, to start writing these emails or maybe write script for a phone call. And they're sounding really realistic. It sounds like a person. You can't necessarily always tell that it's a bot or whatever. And so that's something that also makes it really easy for employees or, or individuals to, to fall for these scams. You used to be able to count on a spelling error or two exactly. to stand out by from your reporting, we're learning AI is making this very, very, very easy. Mm-hmm. All right. What's being done to address this, especially here in Washington? Who's working on solutions? Yeah. So there's a number of different cybersecurity agencies um, that are working with organizations. One of the ones that we talked to um, was the regional office of the federal agency, uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. And number one, they offer weekly cybersecurity scans um, that basically show what new vulnerabilities there might be in their in their computer software systems they also do a number of different exercises and walk through what a potential cyber attack would look like, um, basically a dry run, and use that to prompt them with questions like, what would you do in this situation? How would you tell the public? Um, what do you do after the fact? At what point are we you know, updating our systems and bringing new, new technology in? So that's something that the CISA folks were saying have been really successful, really useful uh, to organizations. Yeah. A lot of this comes down to organizations staying secure and staying vigilant. What can I do to protect myself as a consumer? 
Yeah, and that's a that's a really great easy question I think for especially folks at CISA. They have a whole host of information online as well that they that they re- are really pointing individuals to. They have kind of four basic tips. Um, the first one is recognizing and reporting phishing. So basically, that means that you should be on the lookout for any sort of suspicious emails, messages, texts that come in, especially ones that are very urgent in in nature that are asking you to send personal or financial information. And usually there's some sort of link that they're asking you to click on or maybe something to download. Basically, do not do that. Report the email and then delete it. Number two, what they're saying is to use strong passwords. Of course, something that, you know, I and I know many others should work on a little bit better. Creating really long random passwords. Try not to use the same ones. Um, Try not to use, you know, common common info like your pet names or your birthday. Um, You're telling me Marge one. One was not a good password. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, so it's everyone, everyone does. It's yeah. so common. And then the third is turning on some sort of multi-factor authentication, which I think is becoming more common. So that, for example, if you're trying to log into your email, it might send your phone a code. And then the fourth one, again, which is really simple, is just updating software as soon as you can. When you see an update is available on your phone or your computer, then that basically means that the system, you know, organizers or manufacturers have found a vulnerability and have created a patch or some sort of uh, solution to fix that and make it a stronger security. Um, so update that as soon as possible. Don't don't let it get to be where you have 10, 12 updates that you need to do. Yeah, that multi-factor authentication feels like a pain in the butt, but it has actually saved mine. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely. No, me as well. Yeah. Elise Takahama, Seattle Times healthcare reporter. Really good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Trish. Thank you for listening to Seattle Now and extra thanks to the listeners who financially support this show. Today's episode was produced by Claire McGrain, who was reconsidering her password choices. It was edited by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. Our production team also includes Paige Browning, Andy Hurst, and Vaughn Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you later. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.